were born, you got a gift from these God beings, which was your genius. And the word for them meant your you-ness. And I have to use phrases like this because we don't have a word for this. Your unique dashness, your you-dashness, and that's everything though. It's the way you walk, the way you talk. It's the things you like to eat and don't like to eat, but it's also your talents and your obsessions and it's your personality, all those things. Not necessarily anything that you would consider it an extraordinary quality. It's just your uniqueness, your human individuality. You're listening to Paint and Pipette. I'm your host, Jeremy Utley. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Stanford University. Thanks for joining me to explore the art and science of bringing new ideas to life. Let's dive in. So we have the incredible privilege of having a famous journalist, author, podcaster here with us, and he has a new project underway, which is related to the topic of genius. It's probably something all of us here at Stanford are at least familiar with. There's a famous study, maybe David can speak to that, a famous study commissioned about genius actually at Stanford a long time ago. But it's a topic near and dear to our hearts because of David's unique definition of the word. So you might be thinking, genius, what does that have to do with transformative design? Well, I'd love to help illuminate that. Maybe we can have a little bit of a conversation between me and David, and then you guys can ask some questions as well. I think it's a topic that is of profound import to the topic of the course, transformative design. And it's incredibly empowering when you realize the possibilities. So it's a privilege to get to have David here. Hopefully we can all learn something from it. So maybe David, just to get started. And by the way, I'm recording this so that you can listen to it later if you want to as well. So that's why we're speaking into a microphone, even though you're not hearing anything over the loudspeakers. So maybe we can start with the question of why genius? Why genius? Why did you undertake this as the next? I mean, you've written several very successful books. Why has genius taken your fancy? Oddly, a lot of books don't have a good origin story because you don't know where it really comes from exactly, but this one does. I was working my previous book, How Minds Change, and one of the first interviews I did was with a researcher named Jim Alcock, and he's an expert in belief. He's been researching it for 45 years. It's his life's path. It's his life's obsession and famous psychologist. And I was sitting down in front of him and I asked him, hey, just to get started, it was very early in the research. I said, you know, just an old journalist trick here, being transparent with you, pretend I'm five years old. What does the word belief mean? What's the definition of the word belief? And he pushed away from his desk and went, oh, that is a tough one, my friend. And I felt scared. I felt like the icy thing go through my veins because I'm like, am I going to go back and tell my editors and everybody like, I think maybe I can't write a book about this. And I asked him, I was like, what do you mean? You've been studying this for 45 years. Why can't you give me a definition of the word belief? And he looked me dead in the eye and said, I can't give you an answer because I've been studying this for 45 years. And I took a lot of rapid notes because that was like an explosive concept to me that the idea that the more expertise you have in a topic, the less you can define it. And I just set it aside as a note and went back to, well, let's talk about this. And it wouldn't go away. Like it kept coming back up in my mind. And I was, I started thinking, I would like to write a book about that concept, but I wanted to find a hook to talk about that concept. And I'm also obsessed with the idea that people, if you ask someone what the word genius means in this room, you'll get a lot of different answers. And it wasn't a clearly defined concept and it started being thrown around a lot. The plenty from Elon Musk to Kanye West to whoever is famous at the moment, 
if they get labeled as a genius, I'm like, you mean genius like Beethoven, like genius like Einstein? What do you mean? And it started to become an obsession in that way. And that's how it started. That's how the whole project started. And I didn't really expect this, but it's going from psychology concepts, the neuroscientific concepts to cognitive linguistic concepts, because there's so many different ways to approach the idea. And that's why I'm here today. I'm here to learn from you more than anything else, because I'm in that beginning idea explosion stage of like, what is this book actually going to be about? And the thesis is, what does the word genius really mean? And it turns out you could write a lot of book about that topic. So that's where it started. Okay. So you speak of origin stories. Let's talk. Maybe you talked about the origin story of the book. Tell us about the origin of this idea of genius. Where does it come from? What is genius's origin story, if you will? Great, right? So, and that's one of the great things about this project is I keep being introduced to these new ways of approaching it. Was that what the book will be about? And it's going to obviously be about a mishmash of all of this. One of the first things I wanted to do was I went to like Mensa headquarters. I'm I'm proud to say I'm the the only journalist that's ever been allowed to go inside Mensa headquarters. So that's a side story, but. My first idea was like, we'll go into like IQ research. And I talked to a lot of people in that world. And I interviewed the man with the highest IQ in the world, man, because the person with the highest IQ in the world is a woman who I have yet to interview. And I interviewed the youngest person with the highest IQ currently, all that kind of stuff. And at some point, I was like, I need to start talking about the word. And I found a historian, Darren McMahon, who has made it, one of his like obsessions is the discussion of how people have approached extraordinary individuals throughout history. And I sat down with him and he told me the story of, I'll tell you, Although I've done a lot of side research since then. The origin of the word from this Latin roots, genere, means it's the same, it's the word that is the root of generate and genealogy and genitals. And these are all words related to the concept of genere, which means to bring forth, to bring into existence. And the Romans are the, are the people who gave us the first like instantiation of the concept. They, as part of their religion and mythology, they which they did not consider a mythology, but they had a concept of a spirit realm and it's a, a bit analogous to like uh, guardian angels or something like that, but they would have considered it much, a much more like defined idea. They believed that there were these spirits, they called them the genii, who would extract a piece of the essence of all reality and bring it into the mortal realm and put it into a mortal being, which would be an individual human being. And when you were born, you got a gift from these God beings, which was your genius. And the word for them meant your you-ness. And I have to use phrases like this because we don't have a word for this. Your unique dashness, your you-ness. And that's everything, though. It's the way you walk, the way you talk. It's the things you like to eat and don't like to eat. But it's also your talents and your obsessions and your personality, all those things. Not necessarily anything that you would consider it an extraordinary quality. It's just your uniqueness, your human individuality. And they really relished in this idea of these early Romans that so much so that every year on the day of your birth, you would hold a little ceremony where you'd take a little confection and you'd burn it down to the ground. And the idea is that it was going into the ether and you would sing a hymn to that one particular genius. They called the spirits the genius as well. It's, it's confusing to us. They would use the same word for both, but they, they had no problem with it. And you would thank that genius for bringing you into the mortal realm. And that, and I did not believe this, even when this historian told me this, but I had to cross-reference this a couple of times. This is true. That is the origin of the birthday party. The birthday party came from this ceremony. And of all the things that like went viral from their culture. This one went mega viral. It's it's within a lot of other cultures and it's spread across not only through Western civilization, many other civilizations. And what fascinates me to no end about this is that we 
kept the ceremony and almost it really still means the same thing. I, if I have a birthday party for someone or if someone has one for me, we're celebrating that person's uniqueness, yeah. their Eunice. But somehow along the arc of this idea and the, the word and the idea that it maps onto, the word is kind of popped off and went on its own path because as the different cultures use that word, when someone did achieve something extraordinary, you would say like, wow, that's a testament to that person's genius, which originally meant a testament to their uniqueness, their unique perspective and how they approached the problem. But at some point it became just to mean only when it was extraordinary. And that's not what it was originally meant to mean, but it certainly means that in our current uh, culture. And I find one of the most fascinating things about this investigation so far is that modern psychology, especially humanistic psychology, they want to harken back to the original way of looking at this, that the human potential is everyone has the potential to create, as they would say, a discontinuity, which we might label as a genius moment, mm -hmm. but they're much more in line with the original concept of this word. So I can't get enough of that. That leads you into so many different yeah. places to explore the idea of. So then let's go there because we're kind of coming right to the perfect dovetail with the course. If you think about transformation as, and our first project, right? Achieving value being alignment, right? Our entire first design project is around identifying those areas of ourselves where we're at misalignment with. We actually started with the eulogy. So from birthdays to eulogies, for example, or for a moment, we started the class by having students write their eulogy and then we mapped what are the gaps? Where do you stand in relation to where you hope someone would speak about you at the end of your life? And we call those misalignments. And the goal of the first design project was to identify and to start to address them through new habit formation, simple daily things you can do. So you can tell we're definitely aligned spiritually, so to speak. The question in my mind is, as you think back to before the word popped off of the kind of arc, I love that visual of the arc and the word just popping off at some point. How do you think about someone discovering their Eunice? And I mean that as perhaps distinct. For, I think everybody can understand how their personality is different or things like that. And not to diminish that is a significant aspect of this conversation. Insofar as someone wants to, say, contribute something discontinuous, I like that definition as well. How does one discover the opportunities for discontinuous? contribution that reside within themselves. I mean, that's the why I'm here. Like, because we were talked about this when I interviewed you for my show. And then I was like, oh, wait, wait, you're doing something that I need to be a part of because as it was explained to me by lots of different people who are in different domains and my own early research. So I did, I went on the road for six months and spent time with people who had extraordinarily high IQs and also people who might be labeled as genius for what they've done. And they all had the same, like, they, they had a very similar story between them, or there was something that seemed to be they shared, which was they tended to be people who played a lot in different spaces and would get uh, serially obsessed. Like I called them like autodidact dilettantes that were serially obsessed. And they would get into something for a while. It could be anything, Legos or, you know, how to cook crawfish in different ways. Like this, the, every person has some obsession they would get into and they would basically get to a, a saturation point with it. And at that saturation point, they would be like, well, that was fun. And they'd move to another thing to be obsessed with. And they do this over and over again until they got into something that they were like, they couldn't reach a saturation point. And they were like, I got to get to this. And they will work on it, work on it, work on it. And they would luck into a discontinuity. I'll explain what that, why I use that word in a moment. One thing I could not help but notice though, was all of these people also shared the privilege of being able to do that either through luck or, or through maybe they did something that got them there. A lot of luck usually. Uh, luck by birth or luck by happenstance, they could serially jump into a bunch of obsessions. And a lot of people aren't offered that 
opportunity. Mm-hmm. So whether or not they realized that uh, they were expressing their human potential because they were given afforded the opportunity to do so. And when I spent time with uh, Scott Barry Kaufman, who's an intelligence researcher and also a human potential researcher, he was like very adamant about, yeah, that's where humanist psychology is now, is the idea that uh, if we afford more people the opportunity to just you know, fart around and find their thing until they find, oh, yeah, I, I actually do find this space a place where I would play until the day I die, it increases the likelihood that they will find a discontinuity. And you have a, so I spent time with uh, David Krakauer at the Santa Fe Institute for Complexity, and he had the best insight into that, which was what we currently in our culture use the word to refer to most often is when a person has played in a, in a space and they find a discontinuity there. And so you have this like stepwise progress of that domain, and then they shoot way ahead. And who knows how they do it? Oftentimes it wasn't through they don't have anything extraordinary about them that would have gotten them there. They just happened to be looking in a place no one was looking or using a method nobody had ever used. He'd like to talk about irrational numbers. Like they were working on a, a simple version of it. Was They were working on a complex problem that required math that apparently didn't exist yet. And they're like, what if we just made up some numbers? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. I've got microphone voice going. There were these people, David Krakauer talked about the invention of irrational numbers as a good example of a discontinuity. A group of mathematicians are trying to solve equations that they couldn't solve. They were like, you know, we could solve these if we made up numbers that don't exist. And so they did. And then they did solve the equations. And then, you know, we get all sorts of insights into quantum physics. And we have, you know, uh, global satellite systems that use irrational number equations because they just made up something. And that created a gigantic leap in mathematics just because of they were went through. He called that a discontinuity. Yeah. And he would refer to that as a work of genius. And there's a philosophical debate as to whether or not if someone creates a work of genius, does that make them a genius? Or do we consider someone a genius before they create the work? This is about semantics and linguistics, but it's part of the problem, part of the mystery of it all. Research is clear that our first idea probably isn't our best idea. That's true for you, me, as well as your organization. But that first idea is an essential step to better ideas. So how do you improve your idea flow? That's my passion and the work I do with organizations. If you'd like to explore how I can help your organization implement better ideas, let's talk. Check out my website, jeremyutley.design, or drop me a line at jutley at jeremyutley.design. Let's make ideas flow better. My overall answer to this is it seems to be, my thesis currently is like increasing the opportunity for people to become obsessed with a thing and then abandon it if they're not interested in it or they reach a saturation point until they find the thing they'll work on maybe forever. The larger population you have of people doing that, the more likely someone will, most of them will not, someone will discover a discontinuity that we'll all benefit from and we will collectively look at that and say, genius. But it still plays with the original concept of it because we allowed them to take their uniqueness and apply it. So that's my current thinking. So how do you think about, I'm a big believer in passion and I've written about it at different times. I think about Steve Jobs. Part of the reason that he was able to make the iPod is because he loved music. And he actually says, the reason the Microsoft Zoom sucks is because they weren't making something that they wanted their friends to love. But we love music and we made a product that our friends would love, right? You think about Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos was obsessed with books growing up. It's not surprising to me he did something interesting regarding books. You know, the other thing he was obsessed with? 
He was a valedictorian of his high school. And do you know what he, what he gave his valedictory speech on? Meet me in outer space. How many of you, when you see him going up in a rocket ship, think, oh, that's a billionaire's club thing. He's just trying to compete with Richard Branson. I know I did. And then I start studying him and I go, wait, since he was 14 years old, he's been obsessed with this question of going to space. And to me, I mean, by the way, that's not to endorse those personalities or management styles or anything like that, is to say, I do see evidence that love and passion plays into one's ability to create a disproportionate or discontinuous difference. And yet at the same time, I'm also aware of like Cal Newport, you know, he's got a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And the whole premise of his book is passion is baloney. And people say, follow your passion. That doesn't mean anything. He takes down even Steve Jobs' speech at Stanford about following your passion and how that's not even true about Steve Jobs. And so I would love to hear, how do you think about that? So, Which is to say to me, out of both sides of my mouth, I'd say, it's at least not straightforward Mm -hmm. that the answer is follow your passion. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about that? Going back to this question, again, of finding your Eunice, how does one know, is this a passion where there's going to be a discontinuous advance? Or is this something that I ought to keep in check and maybe not indulge so much? It comes up in creative pursuits and artistic pursuits a lot, right? Like a person in in those spaces isn't trying to create a discontinuity. They're not trying. I think in STEM world, that framework makes a lot of sense. The Institute for Complexity Science, they enjoy that as a framework. But, you know, interestingly, Krakauer, it was a very bizarre thing to bring up out of nowhere as far as the conversation was going was that we're saying that one person playing basketball on a team uses more calories, more glucose is going to the brain than a person trying to solve a math equation. And he was like, so what are we like? He's like, I'm aware there's a little bit of bias in my world that we're not considering all domains of human endeavor. The definition of genius in that world or in the world of like violin or in the world of anything, culinary arts, it's going to be slightly skewed in that direction. A lot of people in those worlds who are considered genius were just doing their job. They were just trying to solve problems that were they were facing, and that's problems the whole career field was facing. There is this side of things that I'm going to slowly wade into, which is I get people who they laud genius so much they want to talk about it all day long, and there are other people who are just trying to get through the day. And there are a whole many stories through history of people we consider genius level, or they've done something that we would consider a work of genius that they were simply trying to solve the problem of how do I get food in my mouth and the mouths of my children. And there has to be something there to talk about. And so I'm at the beginning of looking into that. The necessity framework, perhaps. Necessity being the mother of genius. So one last question, and then I'll open it up to the class as well. I'd love to talk about, similar actually to Luisa's comment earlier regarding generative AI and bias. I read another book. I can't remember. I think it was written by a guy at Yale who's talking about genius in some capacity. And he mentioned how among a survey of kind of a mixed survey, men and women, different races, ages, nationalities, et cetera, if they were asked to name 10 geniuses, on average, a woman's name didn't come up until number seven or eight or something like that. And even among educated women, the first genius on their list wasn't until something like seven or eight. And which is to say, there's definitely gender bias there. How do you think about accounting for bias in this realm or in this topic? And how does one offset, you know, to use the large language models as an example, there's a lot of bias baked in. How do, and just to use that as a metaphor, how does one become aware of one's own large language model biases as one thinks about genius in one's own life or in the world, et cetera? This is enormous, right? Because the history of this exploration is 
very, very old white duty. And the thing is, and I was shocked to find this, and I was shocked that this is going to be a big part of the investigation, is that as soon as we started quantifying these things, it went to eugenics immediately, like immediately. And there was a period of time, I don't know how aware anyone is, I was shocked to learn this. Like when the IQ test was developed, it was originally developed by French public schools because they were just trying to figure out how do we get people who were like peasanty to come school. And so we can't teach everyone. It's going to be expensive. Some people can't come. I didn't realize that the whole idea at the very beginning was exclusion. There was, they were like, some people get, don't get to go to our public schools. So they're like, let's develop a test to figure out where to put people and what grade they should go in. And we'll, you know, they did it by averaging in them and figuring out, well, you're above average or below average. You'll go into a class that's advanced. You'll go one that's behind. And that's how we'll solve this problem. And the result of that was the IQ test. And then the IQ test was quickly wrapped into a lot of other academic domains. And as soon as it was in those, it started being used for nefarious purposes. In the United States, you know, you used to come to Ellis Island and they would give you an IQ test. If it was too low, you might get sterilized because they didn't want to have more morons and imbeciles in the population. And at the time, moron and imbecile were scientific labels for a person of a certain IQ. And as soon as they had that, though, they also had, what do we call people with an above IQ? And they're like, oh, we'll use the phrase, we'll use the word genius. And they put the genius label on you. And once they had that, they're like, oh, wow, what if we tried to just make generations of geniuses? And that went straight to eugenics. And of course, the eugenics of that era was extremely, anyone who doesn't look like me doesn't get to be a, put into that category, clearly just by the fact of the color of their skin or the nature of their ethnicity that person couldn't even possibly be a genius. And it was right there from the beginning. Like IQ testing and intelligence testing and quantifying human potential was biased right off the bat. You would think that maybe we got past that by now, or at least we're aware of it. But one month from today, I'm going to go spend a week with two eugenicists who live in Pennsylvania. They've recently went on the news. I thought I had like exclusive rights to them, but they have a pretty strong PR campaign going. Simone and Malcolm Collins, they call themselves the Gattaca couple. They're trying to alter the genetic makeup of their offspring to be geniuses. And they actually started a small school, the genius school, just for the other people who are doing this. They call it the pro-natalist movement. And it reeks of eugenics. And I've told them this. I've been very transparent with them. Like, when I put you in this book, that's how I'm going to describe this. And they're like, it's fine. They're proud of it. They're okay with it. They believe they can convert all of us to their way of seeing things. And, you know, they'll say things like, we knew your child was destined for it to have a disorder would you use this technology to prevent that? Because you don't want them to have a disadvantage. And so if we knew that they were going to have a certain level of intelligence, wouldn't you use this to give them an above level of intelligence to eradicate their disadvantage? That's how they argue for it. And they aren't the only people doing this. There is a pro-natalist movement in this country currently of people that have the money to do this thing. And they're going to be part of the book because the history of uh, human potential research has a lot of eugenics wrapped up in it. So there's not been a whole lot of DEI in this world, to put it very simply. And I tend to you know, face that head on. By day, I'm a professor, but I absolutely love moonlighting as a front row student next to you during these interviews. One of my favorite things is taking the gems from these episodes and turning them into practical tips and lessons for you and your team. If you want to share the lessons you picked up from this episode with your organization, feel free to reach out. I'd be thrilled to do a keynote on the secrets that I've gleaned from creative masters or put together a hands-on workshop to supercharge your next offsite adventure. Hit me up at jutley at jeremyutley.design for more information.